Hey, all you people out there. Welcome back to the Ancient Art Podcast. Seems I'm not the only one that noticed the crazy resemblance between that one Egyptian statue at the Field Museum and, oh, the most famous entertainer in the history of the world, Michael Jackson. The press also caught wind of the same likeness early this month, and the web's been all kinds of lit up with articles and blog posts. If you want to check it out for yourself, I've put together a collection of the many links at ancientartpodcast.org in the additional resources section under the blog post, Ancient Egyptian Michael Jackson Lookalike. My wife and I went to the Field Museum last weekend to see the Pirates exhibition, and while we were there, I took a few new photos of the Egyptian statue. Added bonus, we got our names stamped in Egyptian hieroglyphs, but I was kind of a jerk and made them redo her name, because, well, they spelled it wrong. Like the gallery label in the Field Museum says, statues of a woman from the New Kingdom, and that's pretty vague, but if you look at it more closely, you'll notice that the facial characteristics and the headdress bear some resemblance to the topic at hand in recent episodes, the Amarna period. Those sharp almondine eyes, deep eyelids, large full lips, high cheekbones, and exaggerated eyebrows all indicate the influence of the Amarna period following the reign of the heretic King Akhenaten. Plus, the wig favors the fashion of the time. Last time in episode 22, Nefertiti, Devonia Michael, in our discussion of Lorraine O'Grady's contemporary works, Miscegenated Family Album, and Nefertiti, Devonia Evangeline, we briefly talked about the family of Akhenaten and Nefertiti and touched on the line of kings following Akhenaten. Gets a little confusing late in Akhenaten's reign. Did Nefertiti rule alongside him as co-regent? Was there another male king on the scene? Did one of Akhenaten's daughters assume the throne for a while? How many kings were there between Akhenaten and Tut? These questions continue to be debated, as can be seen in the latest issue of Kemet magazine, the fall 2009 issue, volume 20, number 3, in Aidan Dodson's article, Were Nefertiti and Tutankhamun Co-Regents? Your head can really spin around if you think too hard about this. It's like trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the box and only half the pieces. Looking at what we do have, though, we see a kind of turbulent transition from heretical Atonism back to orthodoxy. But it's not a complete return. The Amarna period has a lasting impact on Egyptian art, giving rise to what's sometimes dubbed the post-Amarna period, or more romantically, the legacy of Amarna. You might be familiar with this all-too-famous throne from the tomb of King Tut, which could be yours now for only $895 plus $39 shipping and handling, direct from Sky Mall. The original of this magnificent work of ancient Egyptian artistry is now in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. There are countless spectacular things about it, but one interesting nuance to zero in on is the inscription. The chair must have been produced very early in the reign of King Tut. We could tell because he's referred to by his early throne name, Tutankhaten, with his wife, Ankh-Esen-Pa-Aten, third daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. About a year into his reign, Tut changed his name from Tutankhaten to the more familiar Tutankhamun, which means the living image of Amun, and his queen changed her name from Ankh-Esen-Pa-Aten to Ankh-Esen-Amun, or if you're Boris Karloff, that's Princess Ankh-Esen-Amun. Of course, at the time, Tut was only about 10 years old, so the notion that he made any decision on his own other than which toy to play with today might be a little far-fetched. More likely, the name change was imposed on the boy king by the vizier I and other advisors like General Horemheb to win favor with the bitter and previously disenfranchised Temple of Amun. No, really, we were on your side the whole time. Yeah, that's the ticket. 
Stylistically, the decoration of the chair also shows a strong entrenchment in the Amarna period, not only with the subject matter of the solar disc Aten shining down on the royal couple, but in the figures themselves, with their long slender limbs, sharp almondine eyes, large heads, elongated torso, and cute little paunches. These characteristic Amarna features gradually soften in the arts, becoming less pronounced as time marches on. Some works of art well into the 19th dynasty, the time of those bajillion Ramseses, continue to show strong vestiges of the Amarna style, which we'll check out in a minute, but one final note that deserves recognition is the coloration of their skin. Tuts represented with the customarily dark skin of ancient Egyptian men, but so is his queen. Egyptian women are traditionally shown with lighter skin than men. The typical explanation for this is that men worked outdoors all day, so they had tanned skin, whereas women worked indoors all day, didn't tan as much, and are therefore traditionally shown with fairer skin. That argument's also usually put forth against skin color as an indicator of heredity. Well, permit me to get a little cynical, but that's a prime example of art historical chauvinism getting in the way of visual interpretation. Translation, look before you leap. There are many works of art from throughout Egyptian history where it's safe to interpret racial type being expressed through skin color, among other features. God forbid the Egyptians practiced mixed marriage as far back as 2600 BC, as evidenced in the statues of Rahotep and Nofret from the 5th dynasty in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. What continues to hold public interpretation back from a more realistic, diverse perspective of the ancient Egyptians are these sweeping blanket statements that often find their way into the press along the lines of ancient Egyptians are not Arabs and are not Africans, despite the fact that Egypt is in Africa. The issue is not black or white. So was Zankas and Amun a tomboy, spending more time outdoors than a proper young Egyptian lady should? Or were she and Tut both of a more southern Egyptian heritage, closer to Nubian? Well, that's a can of worms we don't have time to get into. But if you want a nice synopsis of the whole issue, check out the 20-year-old article by Frank Yurko, Were the Ancient Egyptians Black or White? in the September-October 1989 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, or BAR. You'll find a link to the full-text article in the bibliography at ancientartpodcast.org. And then some 20 to 100 years after the reign of King Tut comes this lintel and cornice from the tomb of Inuyuya and Yui at the Art Institute of Chicago. The dating's a little conflicted. The Art Institute dates the lintel to the 19th dynasty during the reign of Ramses II, 1279 to 1212 BC, but most scholarship seems to peg Inuyuya and Yui to the reign of Horemheb, 1323 to 1295 BC. A uh, lintel's simply the top of a doorway. The cornice here refers specifically to the characteristic Egyptian cavetto cornice with torus molding. The cavetto cornice is the classic striped flaring top section of a doorway, and the torus molding's the protruding rounded ledge between the cornice and the figural decoration. The cavetto cornice and torus molding both likely have their roots in traditional reed vegetal architecture translated into stone. This piece was originally located above a doorway in the tomb of Inuyuya and Yui from Saqqara. We don't know a whole heck of a lot about them. Inuyuya is the husband and Yui is his wife. 
In the inscription on this fragment, Inuyuya is referred to by the title Overseer of the Treasury of Silver and Gold of the Lord of the Two Lands, and at some point later in his career he gets the titles Overseer of the Cattle of Amun and Royal Scribe and Chief Steward of the Great Palace. And Yui is referred to as the Lady of the House, the Chantress of Amun, which we see on their darling little Shawabti coffin lid from the MFA in Boston, which I had the pleasure of seeing in person for the first time just a couple weeks weeks ago and snapped this lame cell phone picture. What we're really interested in with the lintel, though, is the Amarna influence. We see Inuya and Yui supplicating before Osiris and Isis, their hands raised in prayer. So this is clearly after the Amarna period, since the Orthodox gods have been reintroduced. But look closely at Inuya and Yui. Notice their slender limbs, elongated torsos, protruding chins, pronounced cheekbones, sharp almondine eyes, and their little pot bellies. Note also how the artist has seemingly rendered a straight line from the tips of their noses to the peaks of their foreheads. These are all very distinctive traits developed during the Amarna period even upwards of 50 years or more after the reign of the heretic king Ahnaten, after the radical transformation of Egyptian art, religion, and society, then after the rampant, vehement, passionate movement to eradicate all traces of the previous order and restore Egypt to its orthodox religious traditions, we still continue to see a lasting artistic influence of the monumentally influential Amarna period. Thanks to all who've been sending the feedback. I appreciate you taking the time and making some good suggestions. If you want to be part of the cool crowd, too, you can give feedback on the website and fill out a fun little survey. And if you have any questions you'd like me to discuss in future episodes, you can also email me at info at ancientartpodcast.org. You can comment on each episode on the website or on YouTube. And if you like the podcast, why not share the love with some iTunes comments? It helps to get the podcast noticed. Lastly, you can follow me on Twitter at Lucas Livingston. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Ancient Art Podcast.